1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozeman. Pan plays a central role in European mythology, originating as a figure who represented all that was impossible to tame in the world, something anyone who has ever worked with goats will understand. This primitive origin was slowly assimilated by the Greeks as a celebration of life and vitality although through Plato's radical dualism and the moral inflection introduced by Christianity, his transition from goat-like deity to devil leaves us with a complicated relationship today towards everything he represented, giving birth to a collection of complexes and pathologies that demand addressing. Joining me to discuss these ideas is Sharon Cogan, here to discuss her new book, Sacred Disobedience, a Jungian analysis of the saga of Pan and the devil. Synthesizing Jungian psychology with the history of mythology and theology, Kogan works her way through the history of Pan as a way of thinking about the development of various forms of consciousness, both individual and social. This is then a history of myth and religion, but with the goal of developing a psychological and sociological diagnosis and thinking about what sort of cure might be called for. Sharon Kogan is a recently retired professor who spent much of her career at the University of Colorado in Denver and founded the Religious Studies Program, where she served as director for many years. Sharon Kogan, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. So to kick things off, uh, I'm wondering if you could introduce yourself to listeners, maybe tell them a bit about uh, your background and what your work and research tends to focus on.
0: Okay. I'm uh, Sharon Cogan. I'm from Denver, Colorado, and I'm really, really lucky that I was able to find a position right here in my own hometown. So I have taught at the University of Colorado, Denver uh, since 1978, (laughs) and then finally retired uh, at the end of last August, uh, 2020. Uh, I taught, I created the Religious Studies Program there at CU Denver um, and was its director since its inception, uh, so I'm retired now. I finally got my book out, so I have more time to read and contemplate and do things like that. Um, so I had um, quite the education. Uh, went to University of Denver as an undergrad, and from there I went on to Harvard Divinity School, uh, where I studied religion. I studied biblical studies there with um, Frank uh, Moore Cross, who was quite the uh, well-known individual. Um, and then I went out to Stanford. Uh, did the master's degree there and finished up at Syracuse University with the PhD in 1992. And my field, my main two main fields are history of religions and psychology of religions. So I cover, uh, taught classes in all these fields, cover religion from A to Z, East and West, ancient, modern, you know, <laughs> all the way around. And then I got into um, psychology of religion, primarily um, theories Freudian. Jungian theories on religion as such. So from there, I went deeply into Jung and considered myself a Jungian. I think that, uh, and I've uh, focused on Eastern thought as well, India and China, kind of specializing in the Taoist tradition. And um, in my um, graduate program at Syracuse, I shifted from that into Greek and early Christian studies, and then my doctoral dissertation on which my book is based involved that. The um, assimilating of Greek religious forms into early Christianity.
1: Yeah, that definitely will come up in our conversation. So I want to kick things off by um, getting on the table just some basics of uh, Jungian theory. Um, central to your uh, narrative that you want to bring up, um, obviously archetypes, uh, everyone who, ta- who knows any Jung will know about that, but central to your story is also the concept of the shadow. So I'm wondering if you could give listeners just kind of a an introductory understanding of some of these basic concepts, particularly the, sh- the shadow.
0: Okay. okay, so as we know, Jung worked with Freud for many years until they split. Uh, and uh, Freud's main categories of the psyche, the id, ego, and superego, Jung has that kind of foundation and kind of went from there. He made various modifications on Freud's concept and came up with his own ideas. So when it comes to the ego as such, which is just the Greek word for the word I, me, my, um, uh, Jung and Freud are pretty much um, similar on that. The ego, Jung understands to be the ordering process, the ordering center in the consciousness. You know, the awake, alert. I decide I'm going to do this today. I have to park my car. <laughs> this is ego consciousness. Ego consciousness wants to be comfortable. So the ego has worked out all kinds of um, methods like logic and rationalism to make itself feel, you know, on top of things and ordered. It likes order. Now, uh, Freud had the category uh, called the id, which is just the Germanic word for it. Small children are called its in German. Um, And the id for Freud is this um, natural inherited psyche, the animal psyche. So an animal is all id. The id just wants what it wants. It wants gratification and to avoid pain. Okay, it's built on the pleasure principle. It seeks pleasure. Now, uh, Jung went a little bit, um, you know, from that basis into his own thought. He calls it, and you know, he doesn't, he has a similar concept to Freud's id, but Jung calls it the shadow. The reason he calls it that is that it's shadowed behind the ego center. It's as if our brain, you know, like the frontal cortex lights up. When we're looking at something, we have to have the light on. That's our ego focus. So behind the ego, in its shadow, as it were, is this deep primal self, similar to Freud's it. But Jung thinks of the shadow. Um, he uses the word the inferior self. He doesn't mean a value judgment by that, but rather more like the way biologists use that term for an inferior muscle that lies behind a prominent muscle. You see. So the shadow lies behind the ego self, and it is the ancestral inherited animal self for Jung. Um, Now, Freud and Jung, uh, where they greatly differ on this um, status of the id or shadow is how it's to be treated. Freud felt, and he uh, argues this in several books, one that's prominent where you can see this directly is his great title, Civilization and Its Discontents. Freud argues that the id must be absolutely severely, you know, controlled and repressed if we're going to live in civilization at all. Civilization entails the repression of the id. If we didn't repress the id, we'd all be savages and kill and rape each other and so on. Now, if Jung thinks differently. The shadow is the inborn primal self, the animal self, the bestial. It contains all of our drives, our um, instinct drives, our Drive for survival, for food, shelter, sexuality, etc. But Jung thinks it's a very, very dangerous thing to try to repress, well, anything in the psyche, and especially the shadow. The shadow can be called the dark side of the self, in that it is, you know, savage, uncivilized, bestial. Um, But Jung's concept is that everything in the psyche needs to be, his word is embraced, needs to be incorporated into the psyche to produce what he calls a whole consciousness. So he uh, does a lot of work with words, and a word is coming out of a symbolic structure. Words always have a profound meaning, uh, and mm, many words and symbols, Jung works with symbols quite a lot, symbols are multivalent, meaning they have many, many meanings, and some of them can never be um, put into words. Uh, so the mm, shadow for uh Jung uses this word whole and wholeness and he notices that it's etymologically related to the words health, healthy, holy. So this is a complex of factors. In Jungian thought, what's healthy is what's whole, and it has the quality of the holy about it. Okay? So his goal as a psychologist is to bring his client to wholeness, which would be health. So to be whole, one has to then we have to combine the opposites. So he works on a system he gets out of uh, Latin alchemy with this wonderful term called enantiodromia, which is the interaction of opposites. Okay, so uh, the ego self, its opposite is the shadow. So Jung thinks we need both. We need to be animal, to be savage. We need outlets for that in society so that we can embrace and affirm and love our shadow self. Uh, and that, that's, you know, the opposite of the ego. So that would create a whole consciousness. A person on the Freudian line who would be, you know, really well socialized and suppressed of the id would not be healthy in the union model. Anything that's one sided will not be healthy because it isn't whole. OK, so we need to embrace the savage within us, have mechanisms in society for that to you know, be expressed, such as sports such as my favorite, my religion, rock and roll music. <laughs> okay, we need to be savage. We need to rage in the cage. Now, he doesn't mean by that that we throw out civilization, as Freud thought. If you unleash the id, you're going to, you know, civilization will collapse. Jung thinks just the opposite. You need a healthy shadow to be incorporated. Anything that gets repressed in this psychic system, then, will inflate. That's his word, inflate. It just gets bigger. It just gets more and more powerful. And it distorts into a monster. A real good example is uh, what I argue about in my book um, with uh, the theme of sexuality. So let's take the Catholic Church, the great uh, dominant uh, force in society for a couple thousand years. Of course, in the Middle Ages, it was like the only game in town, as it were. Uh, So the clergy has to be celibate in the Catholic formula. Well, this only is going to create big, massive problems, which we are seeing in our own day. You repress sexuality for millennia, you're going to dis. it's only going to get more powerful. So these priests who are molesting young children and so on, they have a powerful, like, compulsion. Their sexuality is ill. It's sick because it's been suppressed. It's all inflated and distorted. All right?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a good intro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a bit about um, your book. You've got this particular method where you uh, mix the Jungian psychology that you've been telling us a bit about, but you mix it also with a kind of particular sort of history, what you call trajectory analysis. And uh, I think you're borrowing from a couple other historians there, but then you're doing this kind of uh, psychological trajectory. Can you kind of talk a bit about that and how that method uh, informs or sets up? the story you want to tell.
0: Okay, sure. Um, I want to add one quick thing to my last answer about the shadow. Um, Also in Jungian thought, we always have two levels uh, operating, the individual psyche and what Jung calls the collective. So he's the one who came up with this famous hypothesis of the collective unconscious. Uh, When we have conscious and unconscious together, we'll just call it consciousness, So in Jungian thought, consciousness is held collectively. We don't mean just on the part of humans, but really on the part of all life, and even beyond that, all particles. Jung is, you know, there are many areas in which modern quantum science kind of dovetails with Jungian thought. So if electrons are conscious in some way, (laughs) boy, that's exciting, that's an amazing universe we have. So when I talked about the shadow being repressed, Jung thinks it's being repressed in the collective psyche, okay? And then um, in my research, uh, at a certain point, I came upon this really wonderful book by uh, the scholars uh, Robinson and Kester uh, called Trajectories Through Early Christianity. And they uh, put forward an argument, then I utilized them in my uh, work, uh, that um, we in the Western world in scholarship have inherited the grand Aristotelian structures, um, you know, which involve a kind of absolute steady state, um, you know, uh, stable kind of universe. Uh, So we talk in history um, studies, for instance, in terms of set, um, stable categories or unchanging categories, such as the zitzim laban, such as the context, such as the framework, and so on. And we have these discrete categories we refer to in early Christianity, you know, well, Proto-Orthodoxy, Gnosticism, the various Christian groups that um, debated with each other. Well, uh, uh, Kester and Robinson think and put forward in their text that um, these methodologies, which are pervasive throughout Western scholarship, do not fully, you know, accurately mm, represent uh, historical movements, which are fluid in nature. You can't, you know, if we went back in a time machine, wouldn't we like to do that? and found an early Christian, he might tell us, well, he's a proto-Orthodox, but he's also Gnostic, and he's also this and also that. (laughs) So uh, Kester and Robinson want to loosen up these categories of scholarship and replace these steady state absolute categories with fluid, uh, movable, uh, what's my word, Um, process, a kind of process theology and a process uh, methodology. So instead of finding discrete units and categories, they're going to find a stream, a flow of ideas, a flow of uh, of religious beliefs and expressions and so on. So they're going to, instead of trying to detail what Gnosticism was, for instance, they will talk about a trajectory that's Gnostic, that kind of moved through the stream of early Christianity, got incorporated, got moved off to the edge. eventually Gnosticism died out. So um, I have a uh, wonderful area near my house here within walking distance where there's a stream. So I kind of framed that, uh, you know, as a metaphor for the history of Christianity. Here's where, you know, the church was born with all the froth coming down the waterfall and so on. And then there's backwater, you know, and then there are tide pools. And there's pools you can find that circle and circle, almost in the way, using it as a metaphor, that... uh, Debates in the church circle round and round and round, and sometimes a, stream, a portion of the stream will kind of veer off and go into the earth, you know, nothingness. It didn't proceed. Well, those are movements, thinking metaphorically, in early Christianity that kind of never uh, survived, such as Gnosticism. Uh, so I really enjoyed that model. They're going to chart um, the directionality of the flow. They're going to chart uh, currents within the flow. Uh, rather than, you know, discrete absolute units. Well, I found that to be a beautiful um, model, and uh, I present my book as a contribution to that kind of uh, methodology. And then I just took it a step further. Of course, Kester and Robinson are talking about history studies in early Christianity, and I'm introducing, from the Jungian point of view, a different category that is consciousness and so on, psychology. So um, Jung, though I said my word was dovetails, their their fluid methodology dovetails really well with the Jungian thought, which also imagines kind of fluid model. Jung would go all the way to the ocean, (laughs) the biggest uh, body of water, and he talks about the archetypes. These are like bundles of energy and potentialities in the collective psyche that will bubble up you know, autonomously. You, you can't go decide what archetype you want to have manifest in your life. It happens autonomously and unconsciously. And he uses this analogy, rather in the way that the waves of the ocean, you know, spew up the life of the ocean, uh, sometimes dead, <laughs> onto the shore, a starfish, the kelp, etc. These are products of the uh, ocean that are now, you know, deposited on the shore. So, Jung uses this model of the ocean as symbolic of the deep unconscious and the shoreline, the, uh, the dry land, as symbolic of consciousness. So, when the material from the ocean gets deposited onto the shore, it's like material from the unconscious being, you know, presented into the ego conscious uh, frame of awareness. So, I thought that these two models really intersected. Then uh, Jung discovered alchemy. He said that everything fell into place for him when he discovered alchemy. And alchemy is also a fluidic kind of process. It's a process uh, methodology where you start with the material and then the uh, alchemist in the laboratory is going to do operations on it to, in their view, try to create gold, which, of course, they didn't. But it's all a grand symbolic language. So when the alchemists talk about gold, they mean symbolically the gold of the soul, philosopher's gold, the philosopher's stone, which we might call in this wonderful word that nobody can translate, wisdom. (laughs) These are ineffable terms for which there's no absolute definition. Okay, so I thought the fluid model uh, fit a union model.
1: Yeah, so to kind of jump into the story you're trying to tell throughout this book, um, it's mostly focused on the character Pan and how Pan will eventually kind of be translated into the devil Uh, as time goes on, but I want to start with kind of the early origins in Greek mythology of Pan. So you start off with this kind of basic uh, origin where Pan is almost, uh, he almost seemed like a sort of country, uh, a very primitive country bumpkin almost, Um, but he also, since he's this character who belongs out on a frontier, he has this sort of liminal quality Uh, at the beginning, this uh, sort of figure who stands between a here that we know and are familiar with and a there that's a little more dangerous. So I'm wondering if you can talk about this early uh, stage in Pan's development as this kind of frontier or border figure.
0: Right, right. You put it perfectly. That's right. Um, And any um, creature from mythology, of course, Jung thinks that myth is the The world mythology is the native language of the unconscious. It speaks another language. The ego speaks the language of logic and rationalism. The unconscious speaks the logic of myth, myth and symbol. So any mythic figure who's part animal, like Pan, he is a goat half man and a man half goat. Uh, Any uh, divine figure or mythic figure that combines the animal within his presentation is a, you know, giveaway, that is a shadow figure. Because the shadow within us is the animal, the inner beast. Okay, so Pan is already symbolic of the shadow's territory. In fact, Jung talks about the shadow as the resident in the unconscious, the guardian of the unconscious. Isn't it interesting And in how many stories have you heard, you know, in myth, myth and fairy tales where there's a dragon that guards a... Uh, treasure chest. I always wondered, well, how'd that dragon get the the treasure and so on? What is the dragon going to do with jewels and gems and so on? Well, it's all a symbolic language. Why does the dragon guard the treasure? Because the treasure is the wealth of the unconscious. The dragon is the native shadow figure. Where is all the wealth of the unconscious in the unconscious? Who's there that guards it? The shadow. Okay, so uh, Pan fits right into this. He is the native deity of an area of Greece called Arcadia. Uh, and it is a was always thought of as a very primal uh, place. Um, it's in the landlocked part of the Peloponnese. Um, it doesn't even have a Piraeus, which is a harbor, which most uh, Greek cities have. Anywhere in Greece, you're not far from the ocean. They were a nautical people. But here in the highlands of the Peloponnese, you're far away from any ocean. It is a rugged territory. It's mountainous. It's savage. It is uncivilized. There were no great poles um, in Arcadia. And this is the god that, rep- that was their native deity. Uh, the people of Arcadia said, well, he sprang up right from the ground. Uh, so uh, this is the primal deity of Arcadia to begin with. Then the Greeks tell the story. Uh, later, this is, uh, you know, archaic Greece, and as we come down into classical Greece, about, you know, 6 to 500 BCE, we have the very famous um, event, which is the real event, of um, the Persians landing, right, uh, for war in the little village on the edge where they could see the Persian ships coming, was called Marathon. And of course, the Greeks were uh, great athletes, they invented many of the athletic contests. Um, And so a runner, uh, an athlete ran from Marathon all across Greece, you know, through the Peloponnese to try to warn the Greeks, you know, the Persians are coming, send an army, etc. Okay, so the Greeks tell this wonderful story of Pan in Arcadia, and the runners, I believe he's called Pheidippides, uh, he runs through Arcadia calling, you know, the Persians are coming, and he encounters Pan there in this rugged backwater country, you know, um, and uh, he, Pan encounters him and says, gee, gee, I wonder why the Athenians don't ever, you know, give me any honors. Don't they know that I'm a deity? You know, I would like to come to Athens. I would like to be recognized by the civilized Athenians. And so Pheidippides gives this report back to Athens. And then they open up a, they actually build a temple to Pan, the earliest temple um, in existence, we think. And it's so interesting when the very highly civilized Athenians who invented democracy, of course, and many other things. When they go to build the first temple to Pan, where did they put it? And what is it? It's not a temple with a building. It is a grotto on the side of the Acropolis, you know, a a natural place, a little kind of natural grotto. And they just put up, you know, images of Pan and worshipped Pan there and Pan statue, little, little Pan idols and so on. It's just so telling. They didn't want to put him in a building. They didn't want to overly civilize him. So here with the Jungian themes I talked about before, the city of Athens would symbolize the highly civilized, you know, egocentric consciousness, and Pan and Arcadia altogether, the uh, backcountry, you know, the savage, the shadow element. So Athens is incorporating the shadow element in that action, which is just what Jung wants. We've got to incorporate, embrace, and love the
1: yeah, jumping right off of that, um, as time goes on, and you've been kind of starting this transition for us already, but PAN starts to be accommodated or assimilated in, or has this sort of more cosmopolitan appropriation as time goes on by uh, what we might say are slightly more developed um, areas. Uh, can you talk about that shift and that transition? Okay. Uh,
0: In the classical era that I'm referring to, uh, also called the Axial Age, 6 to 500, and of course, a little past that, this is the era that saw the great development of of the high civilization of ancient Greece, especially centered in Athens, but not only. Uh, And this was the age of the philosophers as well, of course. And the philosophers inaugurated a grand um, trajectory in Western intellectual history and social history, they invented what we call science that comes from greek philosophers they started a grand debate over the nature of existence and so on well they and eventually their you know, overlapping generations produced the great philosophers plato aristotle and of course the pre-socratics before that socrates leading into plato and aristotle and then the late schools well this was a high, such a wonderfully sophisticated time and you know theories and concepts that are still studied to this day by uh, people in the Western world and in the East across across the world. Uh, that's how valuable uh, Greek philosophy always was. Well, the Greek philosophers then have an enormous impact of course, on their own society, although regular people in Greece didn't all turn philosophical right away. and the philosophy, you know it was read by an elite uh, group of people who could read and write and so on. Regular people still, you know carried on their lives as usual. But now one of the things that the philosophers did, well they became kind of embarrassed we could say about the stories of ancient greek uh, mythology they're asking about the nature of existence what 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 did the universe come from uh, what is its purpose where is it's go where is it going and so on so then they read the stories of how you know uh, the ocean gave rise to the to the sky and the earth gave rise to the sky and then they made love and gave birth to all that live and you know, uh, there were problems. Orinos stuffed all the babies back into the Earth mother's body, which is how it became all lumpy. <laughs> and then Cronos, uh, you know, castrated and killed his own father and, and was told his son will do that to him. So he was terrified of having any offspring. So he swallowed all his offspring. And Zeus was the last baby who was uh, saved. And then it causes his father to be ill later. And he upchucks all the children who were well digested by that time. Okay, so these are fun stories. We've already said in Jungian thought, myth is the language of the unconscious, um, but it isn't. You can't translate it to literal fact. Did Kronos literally, you know, eat his children? And there's a wonderful uh, painting of this by the great uh, paint, Spanish painter Goya, which he painted in his dining room of Saturn, you know, with his wild eyes, you know, crunching on his children. Saturn is the Latin term for Kronos. Uh Okay, so. Did that literally happen? Did any of this literally happen? Well, the Greek philosophers said, of course not, of course not. That's silly to think that. All right, so they started a program of allegorizing the gods. So they said, for instance, when we speak of the love goddess, of Aphrodite, we mean love. When we speak of the goddess of democracy, Athena, we mean truth and justice. And we can honor truth and justice even if we don't worship the goddess Athena. See, so they gave all the gods kind of a philosophical uh, and moral kind of significance. So when they get around to pan, they used a um, kind of, it's, it's a faux relationship, faux or false. Uh, the Greek language has um, diacritical marks or accents on every word. And there's a diacritical mark that goes sideways. And that's the word pan. Pan comes out of the Indo-European root relating to pas. Our word is pasture. All words relate to this: a pan, pone, pasture, pa- pasture, uh, pastoral. Uh, even the word food and the p and the f uh, uh, transfer. So this is this is natural for the goat god. The goat god, you know, rules over the flocks. Uh, we went right past there a, a few minutes ago that Pan represents a border area between the civilized world and the wild. His uh, natural world, Arcadia, is wild. But the sheep and the goats are pastured, you know, in pastures, and we certainly aren't in the absolute wild where wild animals traverse, such as the lynx and the lion and the bear and so on, all of whom are native to Arcadia. So um, the goats, you know, the pasture doesn't want the wild animals to prey upon the sheep and goats. Uh, But the goats themselves, I learned, since we're all so urban in our world today, we've lost this sensibility of the difference between the sheep and the goats. The sheep are obedient. And that's my theme in my book, Sacred Disobedience. The sheep follow along a leader, but the goats are much more, and here's one of my uh, technical terms, ornery. It comes from the word horn. I just love it that my two, two of my technical terms for my Uh, book here are the words ornery and horny. (laughs) Both of which come from the term horn, Uh, okay, from the animal. Well, the goats are disobedient. They won't follow the leader. They are very, very tough. They can get out into the wild. They can survive on almost anything. They can eat tin cans and not be affected, you know. Uh, So the goats have a different kind of a quality that represents the wild aspect in human life. Uh, but they're on the border of the wild. You see, they're more wild than the sheep, but they're certainly not wild like the uh, lion and, and bear and so on. Uh, so, in the so the word pan has a diacritical mark that uh, you know comes from this root of pasture, 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 and so on. But then there's another Greek word that's a homonym that has a c- circular, uh, uh, half circle uh, accent over the a of pan. It's like a homonym, like we would say the word story and story. Tell me a story. But that's completely separate from "I'm my office is on the second story of that building. Yet it's the very same word. Completely different meanings. One has nothing to do with the other. Uh, so pan and pan, with a different diacritical mark, are uh, homonyms. But this second word pan, with this half-circle um, accent mark, means in Greek all. Everything, all. So we get our words from that Pan-American, Pan-Hellenic, um, et Okay, so it indicates all. Well, the Greeks, you know, in the philosophical age, when they were kind of assigning different modalities and qualities to the gods, they, they used this uh, homonym. They said, Pan, aha, he stands for all. All of what? All of the physical world, which the Greeks called physis, where we get our word physics. Uh, which translates to nature. He stands for all of nature. We take his original placement in a natural environment, the woods, the mountains, the rough, uh, stony land, rocky land of Arcadia, and we use that as a metaphor to cover all the physical world. Well, this is going to then have a very um, unfortunate history from that point on, especially after what how the physical world comes to be viewed on the part of some philosophers. The physical world gets devalued in Greek philosophy in favor of a grand transcendental realm of perfection. Now when Pan, this is the first step then, as I'm arguing, in moving Pan from a goat god into the Christian devil, which looks like a goat, uh, because he got associated with the whole physical world, which in the New Testament, There's a term for the ruler of the physical world in the Gospel of John. He's called the Lord of this world or the uh, Prince of this world. And it's associated with Satan, with the devil. So uh, that's how Pan gets allegorized to mean the whole of all of nature.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you've already been kind of developing this a little bit, but this is kind of where Plato comes in, where he picks up this picture and uh, gives it a very radical dualism. Um, uh, But then uh, moving along further, the addition you detect Christianity adding to this story is that it gives a very moral twist or inflection to this platonic dualism. That's kind of the way you see them, the the core difference between them or the core addition that Christianity adds. Can you speak to that?
0: Well, Christianity already, you know, and and when we speak of this, of course, it's a grand tradition, 2000 years old. And there are many, many varieties. We have to stop and say that, right? That's kind of a disclaimer. So not all Christians are going to you know, believe the same things. But in the case of Christianity, we uh, scholars uh, are benefited in that, you know, when we go to summarize different religions, sometimes that's a little bit hard. And they're, you know, well, it says this and this, you know. But in the case of Christianity, we're benefited. I actually have it right here. There's a creed, okay, the... Uh, Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, which um, Christians to, still to this day will recite. A lot of Christians will know it by heart. I believe in the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and so on. And then there are paragraphs. The Father gets a little few lines, and then the Son gets almost the whole creed. Uh, and then the Holy Spirit is kind of well, thrown in at the end there. Uh, so with when it comes to Christianity... We're benefited in that we have a a set specific creed, you know, which articulates the core beliefs of the religion. So a lot of people will argue about this. A lot of people will say, I'm a Christian and I don't believe that and so on. But then we can debate, well, in what sense are you a Christian then if you don't follow the creed, you know, the core beliefs. But at least we have a great benefit in that we can lay out all the core beliefs of Christianity. Now, one of their core beliefs is that this physical or this world that we're in is uh, you know, choked by sin. It was ruined, was created by God, and it was beautiful and it was good. But human beings disobeyed against God, Adam and Eve, uh, and plunged the world into sin uh, and got kicked out of uh, the Garden of Eden and so on. And now in Christian theory, which comes out of Paul, not Jesus, uh, Paul comes up with the notion of original sin. So we've all inherited the sin from Adam and Eve, the sin of disobedience against God. Uh, and then we're punished you know, for uh, being sinners. We're already, when we're born, we're already sinners. And we can only be saved and washed clean from our inherited sin by the extraordinary actions of a completely transcendental figure, namely Jesus, who comes down into this world, suffers, takes the sins on the world on himself and dies for the sake of all humanity and rises again, of course. Uh, So without Jesus' intervention, we're in a sin-choked world full of demons and so on uh, that are out there to harm us, and we have to fight against the demonic forces, not only in the world but in ourselves. So the Christians have a much darker view of the cosmos. They have a dualistic model. Now... uh, Through several lines, you know, through several trajectories down the stream, uh, they have inherited a platonic model, because I don't know if you could say all, nearly all or all of the early church fathers who invented, who created the church theology, were Platonist philosophers of some stripe or another, nearly to the last man, okay? So the Platonism got embedded in Christian theology. Christian theology will have different uh, terms for it than Plato. Plato talks about this realm of perfection, uh, where the models for everything we know of in this world exist in perfect, eternal, unchangeable, you know, absolute perfection. And this world is a physical, poor, imperfect copy of the real. And it isn't even real. Uh, Okay? Uh, Now, the term for this realm of forms in Christianity, in intervening, we have the Middle Platonists who called the realm of forms the mind of God. So they take that step to make it into theology. The, Plato's perfect realm of forms is the mind of God, and ideas from God's mind go out and can come down into this world. So they gave that model of the descent of the uh, Logos, and they use that word Logos in Middle Platonism. Then the next chapter is Christianity. Their word for this mind of God or perfect realm is, of course, heaven. And Christians will understand that their true home is heaven. And heaven is entirely transcendental to this world. They are in this world, but not of this world. They're in this world to earn their entrance into eternal uh, joy and beatitude in heaven. So it has a platonic uh, source
1: yeah, moving right along and kind of developing some of these lines a little more. Central uh, to the story you're trying to tell is uh, the history of development of Christian approaches to sexuality. And early on, there's this struggle over the meaning of embodiment um that you've been talking about. And picking up this sort of dualism, you track a couple different strains, particularly Gnosticism as one very extreme reaction to the idea of physical embodiment. Um, and then early, uh, movements towards what we would consider Orthodox Christianity, trying to reclaim it. Although even when they do, there's kind of this awkward tension as you were alluding to, um, you know, the, that God created the world, but then sin enters the picture. So there's kind of this really weird tension that they have to navigate of how to make sense of embodiment. Um, so can you talk about these early Christian views on the body? Okay. Uh,
0: It's we're in a fallen world in the Christian model, and only Christ can redeem us, of course. Okay, Um, now um, the body then becomes a central um, issue. Uh, And there's a wonderful text, of course, many, many, I have a full bibliography in my book for anybody who gets inspired and wants to take a look at it. Um, There's an amazing work by the great scholar Peter Brown, Called the body, uh, the body in society. I think it has a subtitle, uh, and he really focuses in on this. The Chris actually Christian theology has four term, four categories for the self. There's the highest, uh, from highest to lowest, the numa or spirit is the highest. It is uh, the self that can, that is redeemed, that knows God. You know that can that travels to heaven. Then there's the psyche, the psyche. The psyche—that's the consciousness, perhaps we might call it. All these words are ineffable. Then below that is the body, soma, uh, and the soma, the body, is the uh, field where the great struggle between good and evil, and salvation and damnation, takes place. The body is to be redeemed. The Christians believed in a bodily resurrection, but then the body is soma is different from the lowest category called sarks which it translates as flesh. So it's not our flesh that's going to be redeemed in um, you know, the, uh, the resurrection. Um, it's our body, it's our uh, spirit, especially. So the, bo- the flesh is then, in Christianity, this category, and again, Paul is the one who highlights it and really begins, I, I would say, this trajectory. When we read Jesus on his own, and uh, this is a big debate as to what did Jesus actually say and teach. Um, and there's a wonderful um, uh, set of, uh, well, uh, field of study on this uh, issue called Jesus Scholarship. Uh, it's a, a burgeoning field. It's a very exciting, pretty new field in scholarship. Um, and uh, a number of and participants have uh, participated in what we call the Jesus Seminar. They started meeting in the 1980s the greatest recognized scholars, New Testament and Christian scholars in the world. That is, you know, scholarship, not um, from a faith position. Uh, They came together in an ongoing seminar uh, and uh, tried to determine, using the various criteria that they lay out, what they think Jesus actually said and did. And that is separate from the religion that was made uh, of him. Uh, We say that the Christian religion is profoundly Christocentric, but Jesus himself was not Christocentric. By that we mean everything in Christianity hinges on Jesus, but not his life. It is his death and resurrection that is the core of the religion. Uh, What he did when he was alive certainly is important and valuable, but it doesn't become the basis of theology and doctrines. Okay, so um, the Scholars of the Jesus Seminar um, we they think that well they have determined. I'll just send people to the Jesus Seminar uh, website, and they have a a series of books. One of them is really terrific. Have it right here: the five Gospels, a new translation. Uh, the great scholar Robert Funk uh, started this seminar. Uh, the five Gospels, because they think Thomas, a gospel that wasn't canonized, has a lot of authentic Jesus material in it, and should be you know in the collection of the. Gospels. We don't understand why Thomas did not get canonized, but John did. John has hardly any of what we call the Jesus material. So these scholars of the Jesus Seminar have have you know come up with a theory that something like eighty percent of what's attributed to Jesus in the New Testament he probably never said, and the twenty percent that he did say, these scholars think you can all go to them to see their arguments um, is in the parables. Jesus spoke in parable. He always spoke in the parable and never spoke without a parable. It's said of him a couple of times. That means his whole teaching was paradoxical. Parables are unusual paradoxical teachings and statements. There there aren't even teachings. They're strange statements. You know, um, he says, for instance, the kingdom of heaven is like, this is Jesus' category all the time. He's not talking about himself. He's not stuck on himself. (laughs) He's certainly not talking about his eventual death during his life. What is he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like this and like that and like the other thing. Well, why doesn't he just come out and say what it is? Because he can't. Because it's an ineffable category. It's an experience. Jesus is a kind of mystic, perhaps, who has had an extraordinary experience and is inviting others to come and have that experience also. And that mystical experience will unsettle and uh, deconstruct everything that you think, that ego thinks is comfortable and safe, you see. He says that the kingdom breaks in like a thief in the night. Oh, these wonderful pithy statements. The kingdom of heaven is like a, the expression of joy on a woman's face when she found her lost coin. There's the kingdom. Not once you die and you go to heaven. Jesus didn't talk that way. Most of the scholars of the Jesus Seminar do not think Jesus was even apocalyptic at all. So Jesus, he's coming from a Hebraic background, uh, and in Hebrew. There isn't even a term that splits body and soul. The person is a whole thing. Uh, and there isn't an afterlife concept prior to the infusion of apocalypticism into late Judaism by through its contact with the Persian Empire. The Persians are in the 500s BCE are brand new Zoroastrians. They have invented the devil. They have their own split between good and evil. Whereas the Greeks introduced the split between this world and a transcendental realm. Um, so Jesus never talked that way, but Paul did. Paul is a Hellenized Jew, and he is introducing what we call Hellenistic Christianity. And Jesus' version, which is we call Palestinian Christianity, that died out. It doesn't exist anymore. It died out within 100 years. So the kind of Christianity that survived is Hellenistic. And this is what um, absorbed all the Platonist influence and so on, uh, and uh, made a stark difference between the realm we came from and what we're trying to get back to, heaven, and the place we're stuck for now, which is kind of a prison, where we've got to just do our best to overcome the body, overcome and deny the drives of the body. See, here's our psychological word, repress. So I don't know if I've said too much there.
1: No, you took me right to where I wanted to go next. <laughs> um, right. Uh, just to read a short quote uh, from your book that kind of develops this a little more. You write, quote, in a telling move, the devil, the world, and the flesh are formally linked in the language of the baptismal rite. To renounce these factors of life in the Jungian language is to repress them. These then become the elements that shadow the worldview of Christianity that came to be carried in the emergent Godish devil. So I wanted to read this quote because it brings this uh, historical trajectory you've been developing for us back into Jungian language. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how this history of renunciation becomes in a Jungian framework repression. Can you uh, kind of develop that a little bit?
0: So um, I said before something toward the beginning that um, the unconscious speaks this language of symbolism, and then we have our discrete ego language where we mean literal uh, fact and so on. Uh, So, um, this, um, this, the language of religion, Jung thought altogether is the language of myth and symbol. So we can read all the religions and all the religious texts in a symbolic way. Whereas in the West, the religious texts are read as literal. Okay. So typically Uh, they have rendered the mythic into the literal. They have taken the language of the unconscious and forced it to be the language of ego consciousness. Fact and uh, rational categories. So, for instance, when we say, you know, Jesus died and rose from the dead on the third day and sits at the hand of power and promises uh, eternal life to all those who follow him and to all those who drink his blood and eat his flesh, which is awfully strange. (laughs) And that has a whole history that I go into in the book. Um, well, that is not literal language. And this is, of course, what Joseph Campbell is also uh, saying. Joseph Campbell is a kind of a spinoff, a kind of a Jungian, even though he doesn't always announce himself or present himself as such. Uh, As I think Joseph Campbell has a wonderful way of putting this in a nice pithy sentence. He says, quote, I love it when I have an exciting thing, i do a drum roll, drum roll. (laughs) Joseph Campbell says, quote, The Holy Land has nothing to do with real estate. The Holy Land, that's a mythic category. It's a category of consciousness. It isn't a place on the earth like Mount Zion in Jerusalem. If you say that's the holy place and that's the Holy Temple, then you invite all kinds of trouble. You know, then people want to grab it and they have. The history of Temple Mount in Jerusalem can be taken as a history of religion, you know. Uh, So people fight over it, kill and die over it. What if it isn't literal? Would you kill and die over, uh, you know, the difference between Plato and Aristotle? Plato says, our senses lie to us. (laughs) The truth is beyond what our senses can pick up. Aristotle says, are you kidding? I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) Of course, our senses give us accurate information about the world. Now, are we going to kill and die over that? You know, well, in the field of religion, people have. Because in the West, people have, you know, and the purveyors and um, creators of theology have taken the theological statements and the uh, holy texts and made them into literal fact. Now, you have to, you know, drink his blood and eat his flesh if you're going to be saved. Okay, but in the Jungian language, all of this is symbolic. All of this indicates mythic truths in the consciousness, not literal truths in the physical world. So we can read all the religions as speaking this wonderful primal language of myth. And we can find wealth and wisdom, you know, through all of the expressions of all the religions, as long as we don't insist it's literal fact.
1: Um, I was just uh, asking about the translation from um, uh, Into Repression from...
0: Oh, right, right. Let me pick up... Okay, okay. Yes, thank you. I'm sorry. (laughs) So when we... mm, read in the baptismal ritual, uh, and there are prayers for this, right? The baptism then becomes the universal Christian rite of transforming the person who was born as a sinner, having inherited the sin from Adam and Eve. Uh, the baptism washes them clean and takes away the sin. So if one isn't baptized, one will not end up in heaven. Everyone who isn't baptized in, the Christian, in some Christian church We'll be going to hell. Uh, so here's an absolute that you know renders literal something that's really mythic. If we take these uh, ideas as mythic as psychological statements, by psychological I mean statements of consciousness or expressions of consciousness. So I found that in the baptismal formulae uh, of the Christian church, various Christian churches is a formula uh, that links together these three factors: the triumvirate, <laughs> the the world, the devil, the flesh. In the baptismal rite, the new, brand new Christian is supposed to formally renounce the world, the devil, and the flesh together. That I don't want in my life. I am dead to the flesh, dead to the world, and alive in Christ. And then when the, the, the baptism was supposed to be, originally, an immersion in flowing waters. So they would do it in a river. And, you're, and the person doing the baptizing, will hold the person under the water for a good period of time while they're saying all the prayers. And it's supposed to be like a death. You're supposed to drown in the water, drown to the old self and the primal sinful self. And when you come up from the waters again, you are renewed, you are reborn. Now you are a Christian. You take the name of the Savior into your own identity. Okay, so you're born again. All right, so all of this you know, even Jesus was asked this in the New Testament. I think is it Thomas who asks him, doubting Thomas, asks him, well, how can I be reborn? I'm a grown man. How can I get back into the body of my own mother and be reborn again? And Jesus kind of laughs at him, says, I don't mean this literally. You can't be reborn literally. We mean it as a symbolic form. So here's where Jungian psychology comes in, the psychological framework. Which we're calling, you know, can stand for the category of consciousness. So when we renounce anything, as a Christian, new brand new Christian is asked to renounce the world, the devil, and the flesh. This translates. So there's always a mythic language for something and a literal language for something in human thought. There's a, there's the ego's language and then there's the mythic language and there's the psychological term and the literal term. So for instance. Jung's method of moving to wholeness, which would be health. He calls it individuation, the path of individuation. Well, that's the psychological term. The mythical term for that is what's called the hero's journey. So hero's journey is the same thing as individuation, and it's given as a story. All of us are on the path of individuation if we choose to be. So all of us are authoring our heroic journey through life. So that's the psychological and the mythic term. So the mythic term here is renounce. I hereby renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. The psychological uh, equivalent for that is repress. I hereby repress the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now, most people, well, it, this was a big debate, who should get baptized and when in the ancient church, and in the modern day, it has kind of devolved into infant baptism. This is because the infant mortality rate was so enormously high in the through most of the world, for most parts, eras in history. So you got to baptize them as soon as possible because they might die uh, and they wouldn't be cleansed of sin. Uh, so, but uh, many groups used to use adult baptism, which I think this is why the Baptists got their name, American Baptists, because they feature adult baptism, where you're completely immersed in the water and you, you know, renounce your old life and are reborn in Christ. So a tiny baby, Who's, you know, a newborn can't renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, can they? (laughs) So it's done on their behalf by all the adults. But there's still a formula. I hereby repress the flesh in my life. I hereby repress the world. I don't want to be in this world. I want to be where I belong in heaven. You see? So it translates to a psychological dynamic of repression, which I am targeting. Whenever anything gets repressed, it just inflates, it gets much more powerful, it distorts into monstrous forms, and that's what Pan, that's what happened to Pan. He's a gambling goat god who's holy and healthy, and to be embraced and honored and worshipped, and he becomes devalued, denied, debased, repressed, and he comes out all inflated, like bigger, more powerful, and distorted into what we call the devil.
1: Yeah, moving right along, um, you've set us up for the conversation you have later in the book on religious fundamentalism, and you view it, um, not as just an attempt, a direct attempt as it will often try and, uh, claim or self-describe as this return to fundamentals, but as a sort of rejection of modernity, um, but more crucially, you also see it uh, in Yugian terms as a sort of return of the repressed. So I'm wondering if you can talk about your understanding of fundamentalism here.
0: Okay, uh, and this this might take me off a little a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I know we're not supposed to do that.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, go for
0: it. Fundamentalism is a term that is was only used in the 20th century, um, so it isn't. Archaic. Uh, it is a 20th century movement, and it, the term comes from a series of pamphlets that were written and distributed from California. Uh, I, I guess they were written in Tennessee. I've got a. Okay, so the Bible Belt produced the, these um, anonymous um, pamphlets, kind of like what you would get on the door as you come home one day. You know, will you turn to Christ and be saved? See, <laughs> and there's no um, attribution, there's no Nobody, you know, tells you who wrote that, right? You can contact this church if you want to be saved, and so on. <laughs> well, pamphlet—a series of pamphlets were put out, I believe, in Tennessee in the nineteen twenties, around nineteen ten to nineteen fifteen, and these uh, pamphlets were called the fundamentals. So there were these couple of uh, brothers in uh, Hollywood, California, in the 19 teens who believed that the uh, Hollywood movie industry was going to ruin the world or ruin the country and introduce um, uh, salacious, you know, licentious values. And they wanted to return the whole country to uh, core Christian values. This is the birth of what we call fundamentalism. It's going to start to sound familiar in our world today. Um, I forgot where I went from there. <laughs> um, I'm so glad you're going to edit this. Uh so uh, we started this movement, uh, and it was meant to be worldwide. Oh, and I said that the, fun, the pamphlets that were called the Fundamentals listed some 13 fundament, fundamental beliefs of Christianity, core beliefs. Many of these were well familiar with from the creed and so on, but they added something that was brand new, you know, formally stated newly in this era of early 20th century. They added the doctrine of inerrancy, which is not ancient at all. The ancient church fathers talked about the Bible. Uh, Origen, one of the most important of our church fathers, actually debated all this. He said, you cannot, you're in big trouble if you try to take the Bible literally, or any of this literally, any more than the question to Jesus by Thomas, how can I get back into my mother's body and be reborn again as a grown man? Uh uh, origin said the Bible is never to be taken literally, and you're in trouble if you do. And then you can cite all kinds of things from the Bible, which we have trouble with if we're going to take it literally. Uh, so, uh, but in the early 20th century, these fundamentalists put out this new concept of inerrancy, stating that the Bible, every word in it, is literally true, and there is no error in it from A to Z, from the beginning to the end. There's no error at all. Well, this is patently ridiculous because we scholars, we can find errors and discrepancies virtually on just about every page. It starts on page one to page two of the Bible. Uh, But the fundamentalists want to insist that this is literally from God. It's absolute. It must be followed in every last detail, which they actually don't follow in every last detail. (laughs) You have your problems with merging the Old Testament with the New Testament, for instance. The Christians eschew all of the Old Testament laws well, then why do they think the Bible must be followed literally? Which, which part of the Bible, you know? Anyway, this uh, starts a movement which courses in kind of waves across the 20th century and into the 21st century, um, which was an effort to, as we might say, turn back the clock. Let's go back to the time when all was right with God's in his heaven and all's right with the world. And everyone followed and went to church and you know, didn't uh, make waves and didn't challenge anything. That's what they want. They want to return to the time when um, their point of view was uh, authoritative and absolute and unquestioned. So um, I'm using for fundamentalism on this fundamentalist section. I'm using this terrific text by Malise Ruthven called Fundamentalism. And he makes this... There's the noise from the street. He makes this... uh, um very interesting kind of uh, a, a point of um, take he takes off from this point that uh, a traditionalist doesn't know he's a traditionalist because all the traditions he he or she or they have lived by uh, have never been challenged but a fundamentalist is a uh, traditionalist who's angry whose traditions have been challenged and undermined to an extraordinary degree. Okay, so this is why they're angry. This is why you have the white male rage, and so on. Because their world, where they were unquestioningly in a position of ascendancy, we might call it white male privilege, and what we mean there is white, Indo-European, straight, Protestant male (laughs) privilege, they, they have been, I, I imagine it as a grand edifice, you know, an enormous edifice. And white Protestant, straight white males have been sitting pretty in their you know, throne, in their position of privilege for millennia in the Western world. And it never was challenged until certain challenges began to eat away, crumble away at the foundations of their edifice. Uh, the first enormous challenge Was the Protestant Reformation, where they challenged, you know, the papacy. Okay, and but the papacy survived, Catholicism survived, and new forms of being Christian all emerged. But then the worst uh, onslaught from the fundamentalist point of view against their comfortable uh, position of privilege came in what we call the Enlightenment era in the 18th century in Europe, where the the light of the Enlightenment era is called rationalism. attempt to apply rationalism and reason to everything under the sun, and as I say, why limit it to that, (laughs) began to profoundly undermine religion altogether. So the Protestant Reformation in the 16th 16th century first undermined the Catholic Church and ways of being Christian, but it went one step further in the 18th century when the enormously dangerous questions began to be asked. By the great philosophes of the Salons of Paris, and it spread to Britain, it spread to the United States, it spread to Russia eventually, Um, extremely dangerous questions began to be asked. Well, why do we need to be religious at all? Well, whoever said the religion um, is authoritative, you know, whoever, where's the evidence? As I always put, where's your damn evidence for any of these claims? Oh, there is no evidence. Oh, you have to accept it on faith. Well, just a minute here. Why should we accept anything on faith? Reason can examine anything and everything. So this, in the Enlightenment, I'm wrapping up my answer, began to undermine their safe, comfortable position in society, and it was undermined, undermined by a series of waves. You see, uh, until it came into the explicit, open. You know, with Hollywood making movies featuring wanton sexuality and so on, which had been severely repressed, as I'm arguing, for two thousand years at least. Uh, so in the modern world the the one among many uh, assaults that fundamentalists feel uh, their worldview and their position of, of privilege has been attacked uh, is in the era area of what we call pluralism. The Christian worldview really it's true of all the three Western monotheisms they cannot um, open up to religious pluralism they can't because each of them has embedded, a formula of exclusivity. In Judaism, there's only one God. You only worship one God. Okay, now that excludes all other forms of religion, polytheism, etc. Christianity has a formula. Unless you're saved by Christ, you cannot be saved. This is the only way, the one way to be saved. So they cannot encompass religious pluralism. A Christian can't say it's fine if you want to go with Buddha instead of Jesus. It's fine if you don't want Jesus in your life. That's perfectly fine. He's a nice guy, but you don't need him. No Christian church can say that except the Unitarian Universalists, and they're hardly Christian. <laughs> okay, so the worldview and position of privilege have been uh, systematically uh, challenged, undermined, and it creates a backlash, a reaction. So I call Fundamentalism and all of this evangelical Christianity, and today it has, you know, produced new forms of itself in Trumpism and um, uh, the, um, you know, stop the steel business and the uh, all of this language that we're hearing that Trump is the true president and all of that uh, and QAnon, all of this. I'm calling all of it reactionary. And this actually may lead to my next book. I'm not sure yet if I want to do all that work to produce it now that I'm retired. <laughs> yeah, I but, feel that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, reactionaries then are reacting against the profound challenge to their position of privilege.
1: Yeah, uh, jumping right off of this uh, towards the end of the book, you describe Christianity, and you've been developing this uh, really well as having a sort of uh, pathological. Uh, status at this point. And from Jung, you're kind of reanimating or picking up his attempt to address the pathologies of contemporary Christianity. Uh, So could you talk about Jung's uh, views on that and his attempts to kind of stage a sort of uh, intervention of sorts? Yeah,
0: yeah, in in, in a way, right. This goes back to the category I mentioned early on in this uh, discussion, uh, that Jung's Core concept is wholeness, okay, which is related to the word health, healthy, okay. So anything that isn't whole is not going to be healthy because it isn't whole, okay. So anything that's one-sided will not be healthy. Uh, so Jung and across his oeuvre, you know, he has he has uh, twenty volumes of the collected works. He'll talk about this many times throughout his works that Christianity is not whole. Uh, And he doesn't just mean Christianity, but the three Western monotheisms, none of them are whole, and they are leaving out key elements of of consciousness, of the psyche, that need to be incorporated and embraced if we want to be whole, that is healthy. So if the religion presents the model of how to be and how to think and how to act to its adherents, and it's not whole, then it's not healthy by definition. And then, you know, the Christian world isn't whole or healthy. Uh, and they continue to end up in battles with those who are different. I was saying there before with, um, with uh, fundamentalism that pluralism is the uh, great enemy or multiculturalism is the great enemy of the fundamentalists. They want their one way and everybody under, you know, the Christian worldview. So what do we do with Buddhists and Hindus and Indigenous people and Jews and Muslims and everything else in our world? Well, they can't be legitimate. They've got to become Christian, and the same thing is said by Muslims. They've all got to become Muslim and renounce Jesus and so on as as God or Son of God. So these um, archaic religions cannot be um, cannot assimilate or evolve into the modern uh, worldview which uh, is nothing but plural and multicultural. Uh, Okay, so if Christianity presents uh, its adherence with this model of how to be and how to think and how to act, and it's not whole, we're in trouble. We're going to continue to produce societies that are unhealthy, that are going to go to war at the drop of a hat, that are going to be violent. All of this violence we're seeing erupting in our world all over the place Is due, I'm going to say, you know, in part, not giving the whole story, to this severe repression of the shadow, the shadow's energies, which are violent and animalistic. You repress that, you're going to end up, you know, everyone's going to be killing each other. A big distorted mess will erupt from the psyche, and that's what we're witnessing in our own day. So, why would Jung and some Jungians say that Christianity is not whole? Well, it's leaving out, in its model of the sacred, it's leaving out. Some key elements, and Jung has identified these primarily as these two. The feminine, what he calls the anima, is completely missing in the Western worldviews. There is no place for a goddess anymore. The ancient Jews had a goddess. She's called Asherah. She's in the Hebrew Bible, right and left. And we can read in the Hebrew Bible how the um, Asherah religion was purposely suppressed in ancient Judaism. So when Judaism became monotheistic, it's one male God. Now, you can argue all you want that God isn't male or female. But in the text, he is very definitely male. He's called a father. He's a father with a son in New New Testament and so on. So the anima, now in Christianity, then, there's only one female figure left in the religious framework. That's Mary. And she's only accepted by the uh, Catholics and the Greek Orthodox. And so she's not. She's completely uh, rejected in Protestantism. Uh, Okay, and even in Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, she's not a goddess. She's been reduced from goddess to human. And then she's a not a whole figure. She's supposed to be an eternal virgin. So there's no sexuality in the model of Mary. Uh, There's no emotion. Uh, There's a sadness, of course, but there's no it's not a whole picture. It's a flattened, unnatural picture of an eternal virgin. That's the only kind of female we can accept. (laughs) And then the Protestants throw her out. And of course, the Muslims have no model of the feminine incorporated in the divine. So Jung argues the feminine must be incorporated into the divine. We must say God and goddess. Uh, And the negative, the shadow side, what, you know, is called in Christianity, the devil. Jung argues, especially in his magnificent work, Answer to Job, Job has asked this very dangerous question maybe the most dangerous question in all religious history, (laughs) why does God let the innocent suffer? If God is all-powerful, why does he cause or allow people to suffer terribly? So, you know, in the book of Job, that's uh, argued uh, uh, all the way through. Jung answers Job all the way into, you know, 1955 or whenever that book was written. He answers Job, we don't know why there's suffering in this world but we can absolutely affirm that there is. And we have to have a model of God that is real, that matches our world and our experience. Otherwise it's unnatural. So it's unnatural to make God into this perfect, absolute goodness, perfect love, perfectly loving, perfect deity. What happens to our lives then? What happens to our experience in the world? Why does God let us suffer? The answer, you know, then there are the theodicies, the theologians will give all kinds of answers and the philosophers have given their critiques of each answer. None of them hold up in the end, uh, according to you know philosophical tradition. Uh, so Jung answers Job by saying darkness, the negative, the shadow must be incorporated in the deity. God is partly dark, as we see in the Hebrew Bible. I've uh, called out, you know, I have a sheet with all of the negative statements God makes about evil. He says, I do evil if I so will. In uh, uh, the book of Amos, in the book of Isaiah, uh, he burns a city if he wants to. God, evil is in God. And there are these amazing passages in, I believe it's First Kings, where an e- it's the text says, an evil spirit went out from God into Saul and turned him surly, you know. So if the evil spirit came out from God, where was it? It was in God, which Jung argues that's where evil belongs. That's where the whole picture belongs. God must be partly dark, partly negative, as all the ancient deities were, as Yahweh was, as Zeus and all the Greek gods were, as Pan is dangerous and, uh, you know, not to say evil, but (laughs) you don't want to cross him. Uh, And he's giving and loving and magnificent. In India, they have a much easier time with all of this because they never said their religion was literal fact. So in India, the great deity Shiva Who creates and then destroys the universe ruthlessly? Kali is their favorite goddess of India. Uh, She, you know, she wades in the blood of the dead and laughs and, you know, eats. She has a garland of human heads around her. She's a wonderful mythic figure that shows the darkness, the shadow, the savage side, what Christians call the devil, is fully incorporated in the deity. Shiva and Kali are part devil, part, uh, you know, good. That's, we have a mixed model of deity. That's the only thing that makes sense. So Jung argues that Christianity is ill or unhealthy because it's one sided, because it denies, that is, represses the feminine and the negative, the shadow in particular. Now, I used a really terrific text here by a Jungian scholar, John Dowerley, called The Illness That We Are. And I think this text is amazing. He's the one who argues this. He calls it Christopathology, that our whole Western world. Is ill, is sick with an Ill, a disease, uh, you know, the disease of perfectionism that uh, Jung argues about. Perfectionism sets up an unhealthy, unreachable ideal so that we all, was all fall short. And Dowerly uses this term Christopathology and Theopathology. He says if you go all the way with the Christian religion, live your life as a Christian, fine, fine, you have all these wonderful benefits, but it's a sickness, a disease, because It denies, that is, represses, elements in the psyche that are real. Everything in the psyche needs to come to expression and be embraced to create a condition of wholeness. You can never get there in Christianity because you have to renounce the world that is repressed, the devil, the dark side, the shadow, and the flesh, making us, you know, sick in our sexuality. We have a disease, I say we're choking on a diseased sexuality in our world. The 1960s started to open this up you know, from the 1920s in the roaring 20s and so on, the 60s, you know, revolution went uh, mainstream, sexual revolution and so on. Uh, but it just shows the level of repression that was underneath. And then in, by the 80s, we get the AIDS uh, um, scourge and all of this showing the disease quality that sexuality had always held in Western consciousness ever since Plato, you know, the forebears of Christianity repressed it thoroughly so that it's a diseased, inflated, uh, disturbed distorted phenomenon.
1: Yeah, bringing us right up to the end of the book, you talk about a possible reanimation of pan, a sort of attempt to bring uh pan back into our sense of ourselves and how we ought to behave and live our lives. So I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a bit about that if you see like any ways that's being uh, explored or carried out or what that might look like.
0: Yeah, and that, this is how I end the book. Um I, my original title was "Pan Spirit Rising," as if the spirit of Pan would rise up out of our consciousness, out of our hearts, and so on. But it wouldn't be, you know, the devil. My final chapter is called "Sympathy for the Devil." Okay, I have uh, applied this um, this dynamic that I got from um, al- the Western Latin Alchemy tradition to my book. Um, The way that the opposites interact in in non the interaction of opposites, is sometimes uh, laid out in these um, stages in alchemy. Everything starts out in unio mystica, mystical union of all with all. This would correlate in the biblical story to the era in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve know God directly. There's even an amazing line at Genesis uh, 3, 6, I think it is, that, uh, no, it's in second chapter. Anyway, God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. I think that is in chapter three. God walks in the garden in the like, does he snap the <laughs> the twigs underneath his feet? <laughs> God is present, like directly, you know, in association with humans and all the world is, is uh, united in a kind of paradise. That would be unio mystica, but it's unconscious. They're not aware of their condition. Then, The next step for the opposites to mm, constellate out is what's called the coincidentia oppositorum in the Latin tradition. The first incidence of opposition breaks the unity. And this is in the biblical story when Adam and Eve eat of the tree. What what fruit is it? It's really interesting. They eat of the tree of the knowledge, not just knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, The knowledge of differentiation, of distinction. And then they know their eyes are open and they know things. They're coming to consciousness. The first thing they know is, oh, they're naked. Oh, my God. And they, they notice difference between the two of them. So the consciousness of differentiation has now been inaugurated. Uh, and, you know, the alchemists argue that the um, evolution of the material, which is, you know, our lives, our consciousness, has to go through these stages. So these are natural stages of unfoldment. If you stayed in Unio Mystica forever, which is what the animal is in nature, you never differentiate yourself from the other or from anything else so you have to go through this coincidentia oppositorum where you notice differences and then it moves into a complexio oppositorum where you have enmity now it's us them black white gay straight male female etc and there's enmity and battling the way i imagine it also in a person's life in childhood we're in unio mystica the baby is completely mystical in mystical union, it doesn't even know the difference maybe between itself and its mother's body, because it wasn't different, you know, until it got born. And through childhood, where the child can merge with the animal so easily, you know, and play, this is unio mystica. And then the first incidence of opposition occurs, and maybe in adolescence, where, you know, you notice the opposite gender, oh my god, they're weird, they're alien. (laughs) So I picture the, uh, preteen dance, you know, where all the boys are on this side and all the girls are on this side. They they know they want to get together and dance, but they don't quite know how to do it yet. They're they're aware of opposition, but don't quite know what to do with it. Then it hardens into us them, male, female, you know, the women's movement in masculine oppression of women, etc. And all these battles between us and them, between the saved and the damned, these are all symbols of complexio oppositorum, which Jung thinks the consciousness can get stuck in for maybe even millennia. And he thinks our culture is stuck in complexio oppositorum. It has to move, if you're going to move to wholeness, to the final stage of conjunctio, the mysterious conjunction of opposites. I actually put, I didn't know if this was going to be visual, so I put (laughs) Jung's volume 14, the culmination of all of his collected works, uh, which he calls mysterium mysterium conjunctionis, the mysterious conjunction of opposites which is the language of mysticism, the language that brings together opposites and a paradox, the screaming silence and the dark flame and so on, the language of mysticism, in which the opposites have all come to here together. You have created the new union and you are aware of it. It's a self-awareness. You have evolved into a condition of wholeness that would correspond psychologically to health. Now, If pan, if you have any distorted, inflated, over-the-top creatures loose and still operating like the devil coursing across this world, you don't have wholeness. You're not at conjunctio yet. So I argue that uh, in the end, we are seeing signs of this coniunctionis, of this uh, coming together of the opposites, of a move toward wholeness in our world. Now, it might not be so easy to spot today when I am arguing that the fundamentalists, you know, this there is a whole mm, population of reactionaries. I'm reading them as reacting against, you know, all the challenges to their worldview, as I argued before. So as long as you're reacting and reactionary against new uh, developments, you, your culture can't move to wholeness. But I'm thinking I could be way wrong on this, that as time unfolds, these um, crazies, you know, these people who attacked the Capitol and so on, people who want to turn the clock back to when everything was fine and white males were, you know, in control of everything. Um, they're not that the future is not going to go that way. You know, I don't think they're going to get their time back. They want to turn the clock back to 1640, not just 1940. <laughs> um I think we're going to evolve, you know, this whole culture will evolve. This is the, you know, there's a natural movement toward evolution built into the psyche, as Jung thinks. So I think if you look beyond this reactionary-ism that's getting all the attention and they're very loud, very vocal, um, if you look at these more subtle uh, trends and movements, I think we're seeing signs of moving to uh, to the um, conjunctio oppositorum. For instance, in the sciences, this is so terrific, there are ways in which science and religion are absolute opposites. That's fundamentalist Christianity. that can't stand the idea of evolution. Well, but there are other trends in the sciences, um, such as uh, quantum science, with their concept of the participating observer, with their concept of uh, uh, interconnectedness of all features, all elect- all particles, their uh, concept of uh, unity, the theory of everything uh, coming out and so on. This is all a move toward Uh, universal, you know, uh, the conjunction of opposites. Also in, you know, even smaller things, well, it's not so small, like the United Nations, when all the nations of the world can come together in a whole and try to put forward, you know, norms and ideals that all societies should uh, aspire to. This is a movement toward wholeness. Uh, There's a movement away from traditional religions. There's a movement called spiritual, not religious, which is a part of this. Can we get, rid? can we throw out, can we overcome all of the tenets and uh, specific doctrines that pit us against the other, you know? Uh, Can we move toward a spiritual uh, model rather than a religious model? All of these are movements toward um, the conjunctio. Now, I argue that Pan, we, we wouldn't, as Jung thinks, the feminine and the negative or the shadow must be incorporated in the deity if we're to achieve wholeness. We don't mean the devil because the devil is a distortion, an inflated distortion what we mean is that we would take oh, this is symbolic not literal take the distorted ugly twisted visage of the devil off of pan and he's been forced to carry it all these millennia so that the healthy natural uh, goat god of the woods can be not only revealed but loosened up and and uh, liberated from the crushing weight of oppression that he's been forced to carry now i use a model in my book um, Jungians look at all fairy tale, all you know, science fiction, everything as science fiction is modern mythology. We're seeing the same language of myth in these uh, features, in these areas. So everybody today knows of Star Wars; it's modern myth. Uh, and there's a wonderful scene, and this is just what I am imagining with Pan, where toward the end of uh, Episode Six, uh, Return of the Jedi, uh, um, it's Darth Vader's who is a big distorted, inflated distortion. Uh, it's his idea. He says to Luke Skywalker, help me take this mask off. And it's a wonderful, I'm just getting chills as I think about it now. You know, uh, Luke Skywalker helps him take the mask off. Uh, The ugliness and the violence and the horror was in the mask, was in Darth Vader. That's not Darth Vader under there. That's uh, Anakin Skywalker. And he says, let me look on you at least once with my own eyes. This is the symbol of removing the distortion from the deity uh, or the character in that case. If we could uh, lift the devil off of Pan, then Pan would be liberated and can breathe freely, you see, and can run, run forth and gamble again across the malls of modern America. That is to say from our heart, from our consciousness. And we could uh, once again reanimate these savage uh, shadow qualities that we have repressed for so long uh, and incorporated as a healthy uh, new model of uh, a holistic spirituality.
1: Yeah, so that uh, brings us to the end of your book. So as a final question, you alluded to this a bit earlier, but what, if anything, are you working on now?
0: Oh, <laughs> yes, thank you. Well, you know, I have this whole hypothesis about the reactionary-ism Uh, that I'm pointing to here, and I think I might, you know, one day uh, lay that all out. Uh, I'm seeing a series of revolutions that completely undermined this safe, uh, comfortable position of privilege that I alluded to. And I want to kind of, uh, you know, uh, flesh that out. Um, Beyond that, I had another book. I was, uh, two other books uh, that I was going to do, and I didn't know which one to do. I did the pan hypothesis. Here is my dissertation and finally made it into a book. Uh, but um, earlier than that, I was going to do the Dionysian Christ, which is a similar similar um, argument that Christ, Jesus, has inherited these much older uh, mystery religions, such as the Dionysian religion, where Dionysus um, uh, dies and is born again, and they eat his flesh and drink his blood, which is wine, and so on. So I want to focus in on the Dionysian Christ, I call Jesus, uh, among other things, uh, an emasculated fertility God. Because he came, this motif, which is an archetype, came out of much, much earlier. It's 7,000 years old by the time Christianity is born. The dying and rising God is universal. The Christians don't just own it. But the dying and rising God was always a fertility God. It had to do with sexual, healthy, what we call sacred sexuality. But Jesus and Mary have been denied all, you know, every little bit of humanity, you know, has been squeezed out of them. They're denied all sexuality, anything negative or dark, you see. So we need to reinfuse the religious models. So I have a Dionysian Christ uh, concept I might run one day. And then the other one is a book I was going to do. <laughs> Maybe I'll live long enough to do it called um, Jesus as Zen Master, colon, uh, loving the enemy and other conundra. So I'm reading Jesus in his actual parables, you know, as much closer to a Zen Buddhist model than anything Christian. And he's purposely giving koans, you know, to people to collapse their logic so that they're flung into the, what he calls the kingdom, what Buddhists will call enlightenment. Okay. So.
1: Yeah, You've got a lot of fun stuff to work there, uh, work with there. So uh, Sharon Kogan, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Can I just give my? I'd like to. I'm inviting a comment and, you know, response. And you can email me if you want. Is it okay?
1: Sure. I'll include that in the show notes. So,
0: yeah. Okay. It's uh, Sharon, S-H-A-R-O-N dot COGAN, C-O-G-G-A-N, at UC Denver, all one word, UC Denver dot edu. Okay.
1: Thank you.